If you have a Bible, we're going to end up in Matthew 18. Um, or if you have an app and it takes forever to load because the middle school, I'm sure, jams the signals of your cell phones, uh, you can begin there. But uh, we won't start reading that. We're actually going to begin at the beginning of the Bible. Um, God makes everything, right, is how the beginning of the Bible works and what it reads. If you can open a Bible to the beginning, it says, in the beginning, and then it talks about the things that God did. And the interesting thing about God in comparison with all the other ancient faiths or ancient religions is that God actually makes people and then intends to be with those people. Like most religions, the God has people, but the difference between the God and the people is established to be great. And that's what makes the God the God and the people the people, is that the God is immense and great and unattainable, and the people uh, somehow uh, fall at the mercy of this uh, immense or great God. Now, when God makes people, he decides he's going to be with them. To the point where when the um, Old Testament prophets are prophesying about the coming Messiah, they use the word Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the whole joy of the people who follow God is the belief that our God actually wants to be with people. This runs in opposition even to the popular understanding of what God is in our day. Sociologists use a word called moralistic, uh, three words, moralistic therapeutic deism to understand um, American civil religion uh, or Western civil religion. Um, in, um, moralistic means that God is mostly concerned with just like us doing, you do good or like as a morals and based type of thing. Uh, therapeutic, meaning God is there when we need him, like a, like a therapist, or so we only go to God when there's a problem. And then deism, and deism is an understanding of God that he is far from us, all right? And, and that God doesn't, he comes in when we ask him or we have an appointment, like a therapy appointment with him, he comes in and then he goes far away, uh, which actually runs, I think, uh, in contrast to what the scripture teaches in that God wants to be with us. And not just with the good people. God actually wants to be with all the people. And that is actually why we call it the good news, or we use the word the gospel. If God actually wants to be with all people, not just the Christians, or not just the good Christians, or not just the you know, conservative Baptists, he wants to be with everyone uh, so that couple recovering Baptists here, right on. <laughs> you notice I threw out conservative Baptists too, because the other Baptists are Okay, so <laughs> we're not Baptists at all, so we're going to make fun of them a lot, but, uh, and since they're not here. <laughs> so God's desire is to be with people, which makes the tragedy of sin in the Garden of Eden a tragedy. Because when Adam and Eve eat the fruit and disobey God from eating from the tree that they weren't supposed to eat from, it's not that they broke the rules. It's that they were actually expelled from the withness that they had with God. That now there was a separation between God and humanity. And we use the word sin to describe this. It's when we sin, we're actually ascribing to a belief that we don't want to or shouldn't be or for some reason are apart from God. Sin is like a push away from God, and God, by definition, is trying and working and wanting to be with all humans, everyone, not just the Christians, but everyone. 
And if God is in this pursuit and the sin pushes us away, if that's our understanding of who God is, then that actually affects everything we believe about everything. Who you say God is, or who you understand God is, or what his point is, or his purpose in the world, actually affects your overall understanding of God. If your impression of sin is something that we need to overcome so that we can be close to God, then you're going to end up acting and thinking and believing in a certain way. If your belief is that God, in his power and grace and mercy, does the work of the pursuit of humanity in spite of their sin, then you're going to think and believe and act in a certain way. So, the people of God continue to sin, just like in all history, in the Old Testament, and a long time ago, thousands of years ago, today. It's a continual action. And God, and this is, if you read the Old Testament, this is what I think happens. The people sin, God chases. The people sin, God chases. And it's just this continual action that God takes in order to achieve his purpose, which is, or achieve his joy, would be a better way to say that, which is to be with people. God wants to, if you're taking notes, you might want to write this down, actually be with you. And so when you pray like God be with us, he's like, yep, like we've been doing that. <laughs> you know, like uh, God, it, it would be more apt for you to pray, God, help me to actually notice that you're with me. Because, and, and I use this term, I've used this, and I think it's theologically wrong, but we talk about wanting to reach people who are far from God which is actually an impossibility. Like being far from God, you can't be. If you know someone or you feel some days or you feel today like you're a long way from God, that is a feeling that you have and it's not a truth. And that doesn't even get into like the omnipresence of God and blah, blah, blah and all that you know, doctrine stuff that I'd love to talk about someday, but you can write blogs about it. That's more fun. Um, this is Ezekiel chapter 34. I want to read this to you. In Ezekiel chapter 34, Ezekiel's this Old Testament prophet. He's my favorite Old Testament prophet, but that's besides the point. Uh, when he's speaking to the people, they have a group of religious leaders, and the religious leaders have started to think, erroneously, that the religion exists for the benefit of the religious leaders, right? So the popular or powerful, or let's say religious leaders who meet in a stadium and publish books, they have started to twist the way the religion actually works so it's a benefit to them and not a benefit to the people who are a part of their congregation. This is, uh, and they, I don't know where they got the stadiums in Ezekiel 34, but I want to read a bit of this to understand who God is. And it's Ezekiel, who's a prophet, which we would say like an angry preacher in our day, Ezekiel says this in chapter 34, the word of the Lord came to me, so it came to Ezekiel. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, and then by shepherds it's metaphorical, meaning the leaders, not the actual shepherds who did that as a job. God's going to refer to the people as sheep and the shepherds as the hired hands to take care of them. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep. You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. 
The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the stray you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought with the force and harshness you have ruled over them. So they have scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for the wild beasts. If you're noticing, God's angry. (laughs) Verse 11 says this, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. This is like when your kid won't clean the room and you're like, fine, I, I will clean it myself, right? This is how angry God is. And, and you're wondering, why am I so angry? It's just a bedroom, right? But God is angry. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among the sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek my sheep. And the eye is God. And I will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. And they shall lie down in good grazing land. On rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. And the chapter ends like this. Verse 29 says, And I will provide for them renowned plantations so they shall no longer be consumed with hunger in the land and no longer suffer the reproach of nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. And you are my sheep human sheep, in case you're not getting the metaphor, of the pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. This is the context for our passage this week. Because when Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 18, the people, the Jewish people, understand themselves to be the sheep of God and understand that God will draw them in. And they live in a time when The Roman government is basically running the world. The Roman Empire is in charge of the known world. And it's insanely oppressive to the Jewish people. And they live in this time when they believe that God, our shepherd, will strike them down and bring us back to himself. This is our destiny. This is where we're going. And so I want to read this scripture. There's a couple side notes that we're going to just kind of address, and then we're going to understand this parable and this teaching that Jesus gives, all right? So Matthew chapter 18, verse 10 will be on the screen if you don't have a copy for yourself. Jesus says this, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. And it's unclear whether he's talking about young believers or young, like, humans. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 12, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now, side notes. It goes verse 10, 12, 13, 14. There's no verse 11. Uh, 
we had manuscripts that included verse 11, and then we found older manuscripts, like with instances like when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, that didn't have that verse 11. And so instead of changing verse 12 to verse 11 and everyone having to replace their little stickers on their wall or their bumper stickers and stuff like that, we just skip verse 11 altogether. If you have like a study Bible, it'll say this in the bottom. Verse 11 was probably inserted later on by some well-intentioned person who was editing the Gospel of Matthew. And now we found them out and we'll get them in trouble when we get to heaven, I guess. But um, so <laughs> verse 11 is almost a direct copy of Luke 19.10. And so if you're really interested in that, you can read Luke 19.10. Then we also, that's side note one. Side note two, um, we have angels here and apparently guardian angels, which is really, really exciting. And... It's a reference to young or immature people, either immature or young humans or immature or young Christians or people of God uh, whose guardian angels, and, and there's, this isn't proof that guardian angels exist, but in contemporary Jewish thought, in Jesus's contemporary Jewish thought, he would be talking about guardian angels. So this isn't evidence, but this sure leans into that. At the very least, there's angels who are responsible for, at the uh, in a group sense, people who are young or young in the faith, and they seem to be high-ranking angels who see the very face of God. This is interesting because it says if you're mean to the children, their angels actually talk to God directly. You're in trouble. <laughs> we will not be teaching the kids this, because uh, this is the beginning of a revolt, isn't it? Yeah, I'm going to clean my room. I'll talk to my angel about that. Oh, he's busy talking to God? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, your low-ranking angel can, you know, keep it to yourself until my high-ranking angel is ready to clean my room. So this verse does not come up in our children's ministry. Um, maybe it should, but we're afraid of them. So, <laughs> so it does have some teaching about angels. This is a conclusive teaching about angels. Um, when your dog dies, it doesn't become an angel dog. Uh, it just, uh, angels are something that exists, a created order. Humans don't become angels when they die, um, but angels have a responsibility in some sense to protect and guide and for something, they do something that's kind of unclear to humans. The unclarity of it actually and some other instances point to um, the fact that we shouldn't worship or adore angels. Does that make sense? Anytime someone in the scripture encounters an angelic being and tries to adore it, the angel's like, um, this is really awkward. Please stand back up. Like, you should not be worshiping me. Um, I could get in a lot of trouble for that. Look at my friend Satan. So, um, <laughs> all right. They don't say that last part, but it's inferred. <laughs> so, to worry about guardian angels or to speak to your guardian angel is actually uh, wrong. It is an interesting thing. One of my uh, favorite pastors who's ever taught me about angels said, if you do this and you believe in a spiritual world that exists around us, if I do this, it's very likely that you're actually engaging in a physical contact with an angel. So it's fun to think about when I run, I try to run really fast and I think, it sucks for me, but I bet it sucks for my angel because... <laughs> because I don't exercise very much, so I bet you he's suffering right now. So, <laughs> all right. So, when you run on a treadmill, it's easy for them. They just stand there and they're like, all right, this is, this is good. But, so, if you are thinking about jogging, there's a little impetus for you to uh, jog. So, I do not, like, this is not in my notes. We should not be talking about this. 
What I want to focus on instead, so side note, there's no verse 11. Side, you can Google that if you're interested. Side note, there's apparently angels that are high-ranking who take care of young or immature people or Christians. What is the thing that we want to notice is this parable, and a parable is a story that uh, was told by teachers or rabbis in Jesus' day, which would contain one main point, and it is a point uh, that is tried to be made by here's a story to illustrate this truth. And for those who understand the story will understand the truth. And often it's like a nuanced understanding of the truth. And they're told in a way that, with examples that people understand. Because there were actually shepherds. At one time, the nation of Israel was a shepherding nation. It's what they did. By the time of Jesus, they had started urbanizing and moving into cities and, and those kinds of things. But at one time, they were a very country kind of village nomadic people. And when they lived that way, their shepherds were high-ranking. Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. Important people in their history were shepherds. Yet, by this time, in urbanization, the shepherds, or the people who lived in the country, um, were kind of low-ranking. The shepherd would be... Like, you didn't want your kid to grow up and be a shepherd. Uh, they would grow up and be a shepherd if they couldn't do anything else. Like, anything else. And frankly, the people who lived in the wilderness and hung out with sheep and had little human contact other than the other shepherds that were with them tended to have less social skills than the people who lived in an urban setting and tend to smell worse. And so when God, or when Jesus actually gives this metaphor and says, when there's a hundred sheep and one is missing, and they would count the sheep normally in the evening, there's some contemporary evidence of different counting times and stuff, they'd run them into a rock pen or set up some kind of a pen and they'd have a couple of people there under hands. And a hundred sheep in a flock was average, there's evidence in the scripture of having 300, which was a rich person, or only 12, which was a poor person. So 100 would mean you're regular, middle class for a shepherd. And you run them in, and you notice one is missing. And a sheep, if it is terrified, would tend to just start making noise and be like paralyzed, like would not run around, would not walk. They're just scared. They don't know where the flock is. They don't know where the shepherd is. They just make a lot of noise, and the shepherd goes to find him. And in the wilderness, it's pretty quiet. There's no traffic or airplanes yet, and so you can get to a place that's silent, and you would just listen for the sheep and then go find it. And Jesus actually tells the story in a way that the sheep isn't scolded. He isn't told off. Instead, the sheep is actually celebrated. The shepherd would pick him up, and very often because the sheep was paralyzed with fear, he would actually have to pick him up and put him on his shoulders. You've probably seen these pictures if you did too much Sunday school. Uh, they, <laughs> they walk around, right? A sheep isn't light either, right? Like they pick up, it's like 70 pounds, 100 pounds, throw it on the shoulders and you're celebrating, you're happy and you actually walk back and put them with the other sheep where the sheep would relax and be happy and because and, I'm with my flock and I know where my shepherd is and I can walk around now and be relaxed. And there's this kind of overwhelming joy that the shepherd would have because he found the one that was lost. The 99 we've had, but there's 
more joy. And there's another telling of this in the Scripture in the Gospel of Luke where it actually says, there's more rejoicing in heaven over one that was lost and found than the 99 who are there the whole time. It's an interesting thing because it paints a picture of our God as being a pursuer. A picture of our God who chases after the ones who are away, who are lost, who for some reason, probably no fault of their own, they've become paralyzed with fear and are just over on the side making noise. And God looks for them and finds them and carries them back to the flock, which is in the metaphor the people of God, and returns them with an incredible amount of joy. Now, if you have been going to church for a long time, probably at some point someone told you about the way the shepherds would break the legs of the sheep, right, to make it not run away anymore, that's false, all right? Like I used to tell that story, and when you actually research the story, not true at all. So someone probably told you at one point that God will break your legs if you don't follow him, right? And they probably raised their voice like that and were like, fire, brimstone, right? Hell. And uh, that's actually not true. And it's a bad telling of the scripture. And uh, I apologize, all right? On behalf of pastors everywhere. I've told that story because I thought it was funny, but uh, it's not true. And I apologize. And if you Google me and look at my history, not only are you weird, but I apologize if you find me saying that somewhere. Um, But everything about this is happy. At no point does the shepherd get mad at the sheep for being a sheep or for getting lost. Some of you, like honestly, you might be here today with a messed up life and it is 100% your fault. Like you have screwed up the last decade, right? I know we're not going to raise hands or anything, right? But there is, like, maybe it's not a decade, maybe it's 20 years, maybe it's two weeks, maybe it's today. And when God approaches you, there is an incredible amount of guilt that you probably feel, right? Like, God, you have some expectations of me, I am, I've generally screwed this up, and maybe it's not my whole life, but I would bet that the majority of us can point to a part of our life that is probably so jacked that it's, like, embarrassing to talk to God about this. And it is like, and it's nobody else's fault. Like, it's our fault. Like, we're going to try to pretend it's not our fault. And that's probably why we're in this place that we're in already, you know. But here's my life and this part over here. Yeah, I haven't done a really good job of this. And it's bad. Like, it's embarrassing bad. And it would be better if God stayed out of this part because I know He has expectations of me. What this parable says is that when God is chasing you down, because you're running away and working hard to hide this thing over here, and God finds it. The metaphor is that God picks you up and has the biggest smile on his face and is like, what are you doing in that ravine? This is so awesome that I found you. Like you were lost. Your life is jacked up. And we're going to go over here. This is how God talks. And, And to me, I don't know about you. And we're going to put you here with the rest of the people. And yeah, you were like, when you're over here, and I know this isn't you, but you have friends who are like this, right? 
Like your friends that are just like paralyzed, like there's a, something in their life, they just can't make any progress. Like they're down in this pit, and if you would just like climb up the stairs that are really obvious, right? Like your life is messed up relationally, and if you would just climb up these stairs that are really obvious, you would get up and you would be able to see the way things go, and you would notice that your shepherd is right there, and you could just walk over there. But when you're in there and you're paralyzed with fear, it makes it even worse to know that you could just walk up and be free, right? Like, doesn't that make you feel more guilty, not less guilty, to know that the thing or the problem that you're in, the baggage that you're carrying, is actually really easy to get out of? But because you're in it, it's so incredibly difficult. And when God walks into that, There is nowhere in the story that contains any condemnation. It is all celebration. All of it. In fact, it's like, I bring you back and everybody is excited that you're here. Everyone. Because while you were over here, you were making a lot of noise and it was kind of annoying and kind of draining for the other sheep, you know. I know this isn't you, but there's some people in some churches, I know none here, right? Yeah. Who are kind of over here and kind of making a lot of noise and everyone's looking at them going, what is your problem, right? Like, where is the shepherd? Just pick that guy up, right? I want to talk about that just for a second, but in a minute. The shepherd picks up the one and walks back to the 99 and announces his joy is greater over the one than the 99. Now, if you're like me, right? Like I grew up in a church and went to a youth group and uh, I didn't do any of the bad sins. Because at youth group I learned there are good sins and bad sins, right? Bad sins involve like drinking, chewing, and dating girls that did those things. Um, uh, it's true right if you did like youth group in the 90s and you had a well-meaning youth pastor and probably if you go to church today you understand there's bad sins and there's good sins the good sins are like gossip because they're prayer requests right If you're not laughing, people are going to think you're a gossip. So just giggle along, right? (laughs) But we have this idea that there's good sins and bad sins. So I hadn't done any bad sins. And so I'm over here, and I'm part of this 99 or whatever. And there's, and and I've been like, like paying attention. I've been like in the flock, right? Like I'm not getting lost. I'm staying close to what's going on. And the shepherd takes off and leaves us with some junior shepherd who I'm not even sure understands what's going on. And when he comes back with that lost sheep, it's all like, right? <laughs> like when you get, uh, when you hear what Christians call testimonies, right? Like there'll be a testimony, someone, sometimes people getting baptized share stories and stuff, and they'll be like, I'm, my parents introduced me to Jesus at a very young age. I followed God my whole life. I don't really understand sin um, because I've found fulfillment in Jesus and I'm giving my whole life to him. 
Okay, that's nice. Move on, right? And then you get the next one, and it's like, at age 10, I started crack cocaine, right? <laughs> Not doing it, dealing it. And uh, I was the head of my biker gang, and, and different things like that, right? Like, I've killed six people, and, and uh, I don't know, what's a, what are the bad sins? <laughs> you know, like, I drink a lot, and I t- only date girls who chew, right? Like... Uh, and now I'm a Christian. And everyone's like, yeah, right? And I'm over here like, yeah, that's great. Like, you know, and if you're a good pastor, you learn their stories first and you lead off with the boring ones. And then you come to these awesome ones where like God actually saved some people, right? Like if you got saved at a young age, like your bad sins was like disobeying your parents or something, right? Like you stole cookies, like come on. We want the crack addict, right? Like, when Jesus actually engages this, there's a celebration in it. Uh, this is what, if you've ever read the story of the prodigal son, this is what the story is actually about, in my opinion. It's not about the prodigal son. I think it's about the older brother. Because the prodigal son comes back, huge party, right? Like, what was lost is found. And you'll notice a theme if you look at Scripture. Lost, found, huge party. And it seems that there is this group over here, the older brother group, who's like, hey, I'm, you know, you're throwing a huge party. Where's my, you know, like, I'd like a party too. And the answer in the parable of the prodigal son that the dad gives is actually, you've been with me the whole time. Like, what's awesome here is not the tragedy that the person went through. It's the joy that you've experienced being with me the whole time. So when someone, if you're part of, or you think you're part of this 99, like, like maybe you're here today and you're like, my life is awesome. Like I might have had the best quiet time of my life today. When I worshiped, I felt like God was speaking to me. I feel like Jesus is moving in my friendships. I feel like I'm growing. I feel like I'm present with God in my life? Why would God be happy over those people who have jacked up their own lives? Why would he be excited about that? Why doesn't he get excited about me? That lack of understanding or that lack of perspective on what's going on actually, I think, is an understanding of the difference between fulfillment in Jesus and the attractiveness of sin. I think the underlying problem in youth ministry is that they act as if that's attractive, so let's do this safe alternative. Instead of actually saying, that's, um, if you actually lived a life with God, you would see the meaninglessness of sin. We don't do that because, we're, and I was a youth pastor for years, and when I was a youth pastor, I started disagreeing with the existence of youth ministry. And that's awkward when it's your job, right? But when we are just teaching kids this is the safe alternative, we're actually like philosophically admitting that sin is awesome. That wandering from the flock and experiencing that is actually kind of a good time. Like we're engaging with like really conservative Mennonite culture is called this rumspringer. When you just 
go nuts and do crack for a year and then come back and be a Mennonite or go and do whatever you're doing. Maybe it's Amish. I watched a documentary on it. I don't know anything about it, but they all did crack and I was surprised. But when, when we start to believe that there's that lost and God celebrates them and then there's us and why doesn't God celebrate us more? We're actually missing the fundamental part of being with God being the point of human existence. Your experience of the closeness of God is actually far more to celebrate than the experience of one who is lost. What's celebrated with the lost is the return, not the story of the testimony. I'm at the point now in my life where I'll go to a testimony or be at a baptism service. I love baptisms. I love hearing people's story of God working in their life. And they'll spend 10 minutes talking about their sin, and I'm like, (laughs) who cares? Which is the wrong response, all right, in church. And people are going, amen. You're like, who gives, right? (laughs) I don't care how far you've gone from God. I don't. I don't care how much you've jacked up your life. I don't care how much of a screw-up you are. What I care about is the action of the shepherd finding you and picking you up and walking you back and you being part of the flock. I want to end with this. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm. The psalms are like this collection of poems or proverbs and and, uh, songs and poems that worship God. And Psalm 119 is like a worship song about the Bible. And like the Bible, it's incredibly long, right? Like it just goes on and on and on. It's the longest chapter. The very last couple of verses, they sound like this. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I've chosen your precepts, meaning your Bible. I long for your salvation, O Lord. Your law, which is the word for the Bible, is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you. Let your rules, meaning your Bible, help me. And then this is the very, very last verse. I, after, this is verse 176, so 175 verses about how awesome God is and how much the Bible helps me follow him. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. 175 verses about how awesome the Bible is and how awesome it is to be close to God. And then the author says, you want to know where I'm at? I've gone astray like a lost sheep. God, please seek me because I haven't forgotten your commandments. If you're looking for where you are in the story, there's a shepherd. That would be God. You're probably not that guy. And there's sheep, 99 of them, who are well-behaved. And there's one that's lost. And the temptation is to say, I'm one of these. And then there's the progressive temptation of feeling like God should be celebrating you more than that one that's lost. But the people who are close enough to God, and most people think David wrote this, and David was particularly close with God, King David in the Old Testament. David identifies himself as one who's lost. His approach to God 
is to worship him for 175 verses. And then when it's time to talk about where I'm coming from, he actually identifies with the one who's lost. He actually goes to God and says, God, I think you're outstanding. Everything about everything is awesome in my life. Like your word guides me. I feel fulfilled when I worship, when I'm at my church. Everything about my life is growing. You know where I think I'm at? I think I'm one of those lost sheep. In the New Testament, Paul says it this way, that he does not even judge himself because he doesn't trust himself to judge himself because sin is so pervasive and so destructive in our life. And so if you're here today and you're trying to wonder where are you in the story and if you're finding yourself in the 99 who are still there and that's the way you relate with God, I would say you're in danger of living outside of the way that the people of God have always lived. I would say that the great celebration in your life is not how good you are at staying in the flock and knowing what the good sins and the bad sins are, but finding your joy and hope and peace in the fact that God is looking for you and picking you up and bringing you back to where he wants you to be. Probably tomorrow you will continue to mess your life up at varying degrees of success. Maybe this afternoon. And the joy isn't when you finally stop messing your life up. Because <laughs> and if you talk to people that are ahead of you in the game of life, they're continuing to do it as well. The joy is when you start to realize that even when you're paralyzed, even when you're doing nothing, even in a particular area of your life when you just can't seem to progress, you're just making noise, spinning wheels, nothing's happening. The joy is that God wants to just pick you up with a huge smile on his face, with no condemnation, and walk you forward. I want to pray together, all right? I want to pray in this way. And for some of us, when I talk about the areas in our life that are messed up, you know what it is, like right there. Like, and maybe it's a big area, not just a corner, but a lot. And what I want us to actually pray today, and I'm going to kind of lead us, but I want you to be able to have a conversation with your God. I want our prayers to be like a sheep that's paralyzed with fear and just bleeding and making a lot of noise, which doesn't mean we're going to, ha I don't want you to make a lot of noise. It's a metaphor. But I want you maybe to admit for the first time to God, hey, this part of my life is just tragic. Like it is garbage. Like it is embarrassing. And I'd like you to just come and pick me up here. So I'm going to ask us to pray, and we'll all bow our heads, and I'm actually going to ask you to engage, and you can bow your head and close your eyes, that's fine. Because I kind of want to ask you to engage just in the privacy of yourself and to actually take a step of faith and raise your hand if that's where you're at. Because I'm going to pray, and we're going to pray all together, and I don't have a notepad, I'm not even going to look to see. But let's all bow our heads and just respect the privacy of the people around us, I guess, and say, if while I'm talking and while I'm preaching, you're saying, yep, like this part of my life, or, or <laughs> if you're like, yeah, I am paralyzed and I'm making noise and I don't seem to be progressing and I need God to lift me up, I'm going to invite you to just raise your hand a little bit. And if you're shy, just raise your hand very, very low. That's fine. If you want to be bold with God, raise your hand a lot. And just that action 
physical action of engaging your faithfulness to say, God, I need you to lift me up because this part over here is kind of not where I want to be. And together, I want to pray, God, I want to thank you for your grace in allowing us to just admit where we're at and who we are. But more than that, we want to thank you for the grace of knowing who we belong to. That no matter where our life has gone or what we've made of it, no matter what our day is like or how we've messed up this week or this relationship or this part of our life, and our education isn't working the way we thought it was or our career has stalled or our family has fallen apart. This isn't what I thought it would be like when I got here. God, please lift us up and hold us and allow us freedom from the guilt that we want to feel because you have no more condemnation for us because Jesus took that on the cross and allow us to experience the joy of heaven where the angels and God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and those who have gone to heaven before us are celebrating because we who are lost are being carried back to where we actually belong. Amen.